If you're hearing talk on the Internet, you're listening to TalkZone.com. Wow. Thank you for that. TalkZone.com. Interesting hour. So I would imagine nice. we're heading into another good one. So we we have a gentleman here who has spent his life uh, being a combination of a psychic and a scientist. Don't don't you just appreciate the grounded, oh. out of this world connection? I mean, you got both realms. Yes, um, and you, you got them grounded in real re- reality. Yes, with a good heart. Yeah. Just to throw it all in the top of it. So would you welcome back to the show uh, Stephan A. Schwartz, who's written the book Opening to the Infinite. And if you'd like to check out his newsletter, it's at www.schwartzreport.net. So that was quite a story you ended on, uh, uh, the Oracle of Delphi. Oh, yes. So this is King Croesus, and the Oracle in Delphi had the accurate description of the bizarre, strange thing he was doing. Do you know what happened after that? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, the, the, the thing, of course, was that no one could have predicted Croesus would do something like that. No, it's, it's totally out of character. Completely crazy. And that that is what was, that description, asking somebody to describe what a person is doing, you know, uh, at another locale is what's called an outbound experiment in the formal literature now. No cell phones or anything, so they they had no contact. <laughs> no, no, no cell phones, no cell phones. So these guys were sent miles away, like, you know, oh, yes. weeks' journeys, uh, and then a hundred days later he figured out, well, I'm going to do this, and then the the oracle, the psychic oracle of Delphi could tell him what he was doing a hundred days after he sent his his uh, emissaries out that's right and so they were able to do that and the oracle eventually told him that a great empire a great kingdom would fall and he thought it was the persians and unfortunately turned out to be his but <laughs> uh, because as in many things where you you ask people uh, for information that they obtain from non-local awareness the information often comes through in a way that is not immediately clear, particularly when you're dealing with the future. You think you know what you're asking, yes. but you don't necessarily uh, really appreciate what your intention is, and you may not be able to understand what uh, what they're saying. In fact, one of the reasons we developed remote viewing was that if you look at most sort of psychic readings, they, they they tend to speak in generalities about things. And what we wanted was very specific, objectively verifiable right. information. And it comes, actually, we discover once you develop the discipline of, <clears throat> of being able to do remote viewing, which is, I've, I've said in the other show, was is really a kind of modern mental martial art or a kind of mental yoga. It's not just handed to you. You've got to really... Go after it and and focus and discipline and develop. That's right, and it's very specific. And so, uh, what people get there are two kinds of information people are able to provide. There are sense impressions, that is, taste, touch, smell. It's yeah. as if they were present as physical witnesses of whatever it is they're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact. The way I use it, which is to find archaeological sites like Cleopatra's Palace and Mark Anthony's Palace and the Lighthouse of Pharos, one of the 
seven wonders of the ancient world and sunken ships and things you, like you, that. You have found things like that, right? Absolutely. We'll There's talk about a that a little. called the Alexandria Project about finding all of that stuff in Egypt. We'll get into that in a little bit. <clears throat> and made a film out of it, actually. But in any case, my, my point is that this is exactly the same process that intelligence communities use, spies use to figure out what's going on, or that police detectives use to figure out how the crime was committed, yeah. or that journalists use to figure out, you know, uh, what's really happening. And, and as in those other instances of intelligence or crime or journalism, yeah. they look for more than one source. You just don't go with one source. So I developed a technique for using multiple sources. And and what I would do would be to ask people to describe whatever it was I was looking for, and two kinds of information come through. They either get sense impressions, just as if they were physically present at the place, right? or you get knowingness. That is, I don't know how I know it, but I know it. And yep. some of this you can check, some of it you can't. Uh, you know, if they say, well, the captain was thinking of his wife and children as he was, the ship was sinking, well, that may very well be true, but unless he left a diary that tells <laughs> us that, there's no way to ever know for sure. Right. My but um, what we found was that when you did these kinds of experiments where you asked people to describe things at a distance, that events, archaeological sites, yep. for instance, that about... about um, somewhere between 30 and 40% of the material fell into a category that couldn't be evaluated. It might be accurate, you just couldn't know. Mm -hmm. That is, they would say things like, the captain was thinking of his wife. But of the other 60 to 70% of the material that we got, using the techniques that we used, we expected to see somewhere between 75 and 85% of it be independently evaluated by experts who were completely independent of the project right. in every other respect, that they would evaluate it as being correct or partially correct. So it's highly accurate. Yes. I mean, and that's how, we, that's how I made all these discoveries, using this technique, which is basically, uh, used, it, I always thought of it as a kind of engineering problem. That is, when you ask someone to do something, to go into non-local awareness, uh, to open to not was the way I would describe it. It's, you don't go anywhere. You open to it. You actually are processing this information all the time anyway. It's just at a pre-conscious level. Right. So mostly what remote viewing is about is learning how to allow it to surface into your conscious mind. And what surfaces is what intention you hold. Yeah. So uh, we discovered that not only could people give us all of these sense impressions, taste, touch, smell, mm -hmm. but that this a lot of this knowing this stuff, some of it we could track, and it was particularly useful in criminological situations because you could say, well, the guy murdered the girl because of whatever, <clears throat> and then the prosecutors, we discovered, would then, when they were interviewing the person, would ask him, well, you know, okay, you were thinking about this, and Oftentimes they would think that there was a witness that had they'd either talked yep. to or yep. something, and so their lawyers would say, "Well, you better plea bargain because they've got some inside source of information." Right. Otherwise, how would they know that? <clears throat> how would you know exactly? 
But what we've discovered, uh, uh, Keith, is that it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether the person is, whether the target is close or far away. We know that there are accurate remote viewings that were done about other planets that were later confirmed by space probes, even when the information provided in the remote viewing was contradictory to what was established scientific knowledge at the time, mm -hmm. and that it wouldn't be several years until the information would be either confirmed or denied. So it doesn't matter whether something's close or whether it's far away. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, oh, yeah. happening in the present time, whether it's happening in the future, or whether it's happened in the past. So all time it, and yeah. all things are interconnected, yeah, and so all those zones. nothing matters, actually. You can tap all of it. You're listening well, to Master... You, you, you're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. Our guest today, Stefan A. Schwartz, Opening to the Infinite. He can be reached at www.stefanaschwartz.com. Go ahead. Well, the, the, the thing is that in non-local awareness, non-local consciousness, there is no time and space. Exactly. That's not what organizes. That's not the organizing principles. Yes. The organizing principles that that are important are have people thought about this and witnessed this, have looked at it again and again. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake, for instance, uh, developed this theory, or actually was developed earlier by two other scientists, and then he sort of found it and recontextualized it for modern science, called morphogenetic fields. And the idea basically is, the more times somebody does something, witnesses it, the in non-local consciousness, the the more numinous it becomes. That is, the stronger the field. Becomes. Almost like a thought form. It is a thought form. You in fact, that that is precisely uh, a thought form is a kind of architecture in uh, the non-time-space domain. Like energy. Well. I'm not sure. I'm not so sure about that, Charmé. I, I don't know. Okay. But what, it, what we do know from the experimental evidence is that there is a kind of architecture in the. Think of think of uh, non-time space domain as a kind of infinite database. It's what you know, the Hindus would call the Akashic record, or what Jung would have called the collective unconscious, and. Um, I mean, there are lots, and other, there are many other ways it gets described. But it is this this aspect of consciousness that is not in time space, but that does have architecture within it. That is, they are thought forms, uh, as they are sort of traditionally metaphysically known. So, and so, this is one of those areas where metaphysics and science are now finding common ground, and in fact. Uh, that's happening increasingly, although it's by no means predominant in science. Most most scientists are still strict materialists, but increasingly a growing number of them have begun to recognize that a materialist explanation of reality just won't work. <laughs> <laughs> so are, are we talking perhaps that maybe the substance underneath the physical realms and all this is consciousness? Well, I wouldn't say underneath because, again, there's no upper deck. See, one of the things about this is it's so hard to talk about because our language is entirely embedded in time-space terms. Yes. So I now think of it as domains because 
it's not like a dimension because a dimension has a spatial quality to it. So I think of it as a domain. And and what I think the research is telling us is is that the non-time space domain, the informational domain, is infinite or vast. We don't know if it's infinite. It's vast. And that within it as a subset is the time-space domain. And so right. the ancient spiritual teachings which talk about reality as being an illusion, right. which is very hard for people to take aboard. Right. You know, what do you mean it's an illusion? I ran into that tree. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the fact is, as they will also tell you, is that most of a tree is empty space. <laughs> I mean, most of any physical thing right. is mostly empty space. And so the uh, the idea that Consciousness is causal. This is what Plato was trying to get at. You know, there is a sort of perfect idea of something, and then a kind of lesser version of it gets manifested in time-space. Right. But that the, the pure concept of it exists in the non-time-space domain. So what I'm saying, which is based principally in science, actually you can find reiterated again and again and again in almost every spiritual teaching. That, that, the thing that scientists hate to acknowledge, and materialist science hates to acknowledge, is that there are really two ways of coming to know things. There is, and this is ancient, I mean, this is we got know, about ten, Dionysian. ten seconds to break. You can know something intellectually, or you can know something experientially. Yep. And what's happening is that the two parts are coming together. We'll be okay, right back. Okay, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts with sound answers to life's tough questions. Our guest today is Stefan A. Schwartz, and he's written the book Opening to the Infinite. And we once again cut you off for break. Stefan? Well, let me just say this. You you were saying intellectual and experiential, and I have intuitive in the middle of that. What do you say about that? Well, what I meant by experiential is that that includes the intuitive. That is, it's a direct experience. Okay. It's not an objective experiment. You know, you if you're a meditator and you have experiences of non-local consciousness, that's not an experiment, but you don't have any doubt that it's real. And in fact... One of the things I do with skeptical scientists is I get them to do remote viewing because they're right. often highly successful, and then they have to confront that they've just done something that they they can't do. <laughs> right, because skeptical tries to say, nah, 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 and when you start uh, having them do this and proving it to themselves, it bursts the bubble. Yeah, I had a... I, I, I had a... a, a, a a very famous senator who I'll let be nameless because this is the political season, and he got interested in remote viewing and contacted me. and And uh, the next time I was in Washington, I went around to his his sort of secret office that the senior senators have in the Capitol that they never talk about. So he wasn't only nameless, but he's toothless. No, well, no, not toothless. No, no, I'm he's quite toothless. He was actually a, anyway. So we talked about remote viewing, and, I, you know, he just didn't believe a word of it. I could tell. So I finally said to him, 
look, the only way you're going to get this is if you do it. And so he said, okay, and just at that moment, uh, a guy came in, one of his staff people came in, who later became an ambassador, and um, and he said to this guy, okay, Peter, I, I, I want you to, I want you to do what they tell you to do. So I said to the guy, I want you to go somewhere in Washington, D.C., which is in 15 minutes of the Capitol. And I want you to stay there for 15 minutes, and then I want you to come back, and I want you to record everything that happens. So he, he thought it was crazy, but, you know, he was working for the senator, and he didn't have the... He said, okay. Okay, yeah. He was very grudging about it, but okay. So he went away. And so I said to the senator, I said, okay, he's going to take him 15 minutes to get there, and then he'll be on station for 15 minutes. So we talked for 15, 14 minutes, and then I said, okay, I want you to take a deep breath. I want you to close your eyes. What do you see? He said, I don't see anything. My eyes are closed. (laughs) And I said, okay, I want you to be with Peter. I want you to, you're full, you're life size. You're with Peter. What is he doing? He said, I have no idea what he's doing. And I said, look, I understand this isn't going to work, So, but we've got to do this. So I, at least I'll give you the sense of what the, the experiment protocol is like. So just make up a story. Just, just make up a story, that's all. And he said, well, okay, make up a story. Let's see. All right, uh, Peter is, has taken off his shoes, and he's standing in a fountain, and the fountain is playing, and there are children all around him, and they're laughing and screeching, and he's... It's a very hot day, and he feels good putting his feet in the water. And, oh, my goodness, here comes a big wind, and it blows the water, and it gets his suit wet. It's a brand-new suit. He's just hes just really irritated with me for sending him out there to do this. And he said, okay, that's as much as I can tell you. I'm not going to make up any more than that. You know, sort of dismissive. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. So then in due course, Peter reappeared. He was sopping wet. <laughs> and he said, and the senator said to him immediately, where did you go? And Peter said, well, you know, I didn't want to take too long. So I went down on the mall and I got it. I saw one of those fountains and it was such a hot day. I thought, what the hell, I'll just take off my shoes and go waiting in the fountain. <laughs> and he said, I saw all these kids doing it. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> so I took off my shoes and I was waiting around in the fountain. and It was great. And then the wind shifted and the, I got drenched, as you can see. Ah, and I so bet then he, he was, laughed. He and was the senator stunned. looked at me. He was as white as a sheet. He said, <laughs> what just happened? And I said, you remote viewed. How said, on but, earth were you able to have him have that experience? Well, because I just tell people who say they can't do it, all right, well, we're going to be here for this period of time. Just tell me a story. I get around... I just I say okay, it's not going to work. All right, I understand that. So let's we we got to do this. We're 15 minutes. We got to fill you the bypass the, You bypass their uh, belief system. That's right. That's what you did. And then they tap into what everybody has anyway. Smart. That's right. And he, okay. we, the senator and I became good friends, and and because he's active in politics right now, I'm not going to. I got gotcha. you. We got to take a break. Point of view, I can tell you. <laughs> You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. Our guest today, Stefan A. Schwartz, opening to the infinite. 
And welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts helping humanity wake up one show at a time. Our guest today, Stefan A. Schwartz. You can check out his uh, his uh, newsletter at uh, www.schwartzreport.net. And also his website is stefanaschwartz.com. Um, you were talking earlier about the importance of integrity when you open up to these realms. Yes, this is really important. It has a great deal to do with the kind of information you get. Because when you open to non-local awareness, you move into that state of consciousness. If your consciousness is motivated by greed or deceit or power manipulation, that sort of thing, it's like um, imagine a radio. Imagine you have a radio tuner. It's not a signal. There's no signal involved, but just for the analogy. And you're trying to tune in your radio to get a particular station that you really want to hear. But next to the station is a, a station that plays really violent, vulgar music. And on the other side is... I don't know, some sort of ranting political pundit kind of guy. And what you're trying to do is to get the consciousness music station. Well, if your attitudes, if if the essence of your being, the nature of your character is of a very low order because you're driven mainly by uh, need to manipulate people or control them or you want to get an edge on somebody or you want to hurt somebody or something like that. When you're trying to tune into that consciousness station, you're going to end up either with the political screaming pundit on the one side or the vulgar music on the other side. And it's, it's like the, it, you won't be able to tune in properly. And, and, and that's very much the experience that people have when you're dealing with, for instance, what would have traditionally been known as black magic, which is basically, essentially, power and manipulation, and you can generate a lot of energy. There's no question about it, because, as I said earlier, the architecture that exists in non-time space is really driven by reiterated acts of awareness and focus. And there's a lot of there's a lot of negative energy. I mean, let's be real about it. So it's possible to tune into that, but ultimately it becomes self-destructive because you open yourself up to really disruptive and um, non-harmonious aspects of consciousness that that can do you some real harm. And we were talking earlier about healing and belief and belief structures and how people can heal and people who who have negative ideas about healing it doesn't work or the old ideas, old patterns of behavior reassert themselves and the healing fades and the condition reasserts itself, all that sort of stuff. That's what happens when you're when you're dealing out of integrity. When you're dealing in integrity, then you open in a very sort of clean way and you get an unbiased, it's like the filters fall away, and you get a much cleaner, unbiased opening awareness. And it's not predicated on your biases and all that, because all of the information you get in this way filters through 
the lenses and the filters of your personality. And mm-hmm. so yep. the nature of your character makes character. a huge difference. You're right. And actually, I, I think that uh, a lot of the psychics and healers out there are not disciplining themselves and cleaning up their lessons uh, enough yeah. so that they aren't that clean. And if you are going to pursue a healer or a psychic, you surely want to make sure that you're getting somebody who has been doing the internal cleaning up. Well, you know, my question about when you go to somebody like that, if this isn't a person you'd like to take home and introduce to somebody you love, then you probably ought not to be dealing with them. Right. <laughs> so, so they have... When we're, let's say we're getting more psychic and, and this, these finer developments, but we're still gross, like, uh, we, we have greed running us or deceit or we want more power, then we get intimate experience, experiencing of grossities, and it can be very self-abusing, abusing, and, and the people that we're working with, like we're gonna, you know, do a read for somebody or healing for somebody, they get intimate, experiencing of grossness too to some degree yes and not only that but but the research shows that everybody is a player in the process so if you go to a reader who you are you the questioner are is as big a factor in the kind of information you're going to get as who the reader is That's right. That's right. Because you're both players in this. I mean, the the research is absolutely clear about this. We call it observer latency effects, but, I mean, that's just a fancy name. What it means is is that the beingness and the intention of everybody who's involved with the project that you're trying to do has has an effect on it. This is because... When you go to a reader, what you're really, or, or you're a healer, or you go to a healer, what you're really doing is forming an intention contract. That's right. And and the if I come to you and I say, "Will you do a healing?" My intention is, I'm asking for healing. Your intention is, you're going to be a healer. Right. So it is in that shared intention that the circuit is set up, the linkage is set up. So right. who you are and who the person you consult is makes a huge difference in the kind of information or the kind of result you're going to get. You know, what's very interesting is um, some of the times where I'm going to do a full day of healings, let's say I'm going to do 10 hours of healings in a day. I don't do that very often, but it's happened. I'm almost always up the whole night before I don't go to sleep because we're setting it up. And uh, their psyche, their guides, my psyche, my guides, we're setting everything up, and it's a very busy thing. And, you know, I think some people do this asleep, like Charmaine's better at doing some of these things asleep than I am. When this kind of thing happens to me, I'm wide awake and, you know, I'm just buzzing. And I also notice, you know, let's say I'm just going to do one healing, a lot of times... When the person has made the contract on the phone, you know, in three days we're going to do it at such and such a time. Uh, when once that happens, I notice I'm st- uh, there's a bleed through of them in my space, and I sure. be- I begin to know uh, certain things to tell them, and we begin to tame down certain rough edges. So when we have the healing that day, let's say we do it for two hours. We have already leaped into it a good pace. Yes, that's exactly right. 
You see, as soon as you form the intention contract, the linkage begins at that act of intention. Right. Not that time, but that act of intention. Right. And as soon as the two of you form that contract, then you start linking. And since you're the person who is the intercessor who's going to provide the access because they can't get it themselves, you immediately start getting, I'm sure, things appear in your dreams or in Charmy's dreams. You get, you, you know, you'll be doing something like taking a shower or peeling a, yeah. a potato, and, and you're sort of in a in an open focus kind of state of consciousness. Right. And all of a sudden, stuff will start coming in. Yeah, and another thing that happens with me sometimes, I just start acting plain weird, and Charmaine's looking at me, and I'm looking at myself and going. I just got to watch myself for until we get through this next round because we're dealing with some really, you know, stuff that's way off to the side a bit. Hey, let's get let's get into um you found uh, Cleopatra's palace in Egypt there? I did. Tell well, us about all it. Remote viewers did and yeah. using the technique that I described. Yes. Yeah. Talk to us about how how did that happen? What 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 was well, the Well, um, you know, I I got a I got interested in I mean, people have been looking for Alexander's tomb and and um, Cleopatra's palace. And, I mean, all of these things are, you know, historical things. And they made, from my point of view, they were wonderful targets because they were highly numinous. That is, they were the focus of a lot of attention over a long period of time. And so in non-time space, in the non-time space domain, that meant that they had become highly numinous, highly emotionally, psychically charged. So, so there's a lot of instead of dead and hidden, there was a lot of live liveliness that would maybe make you able to connect with it even easier. Well, actually, yes. Now let me say a little bit more. First of all, these were targets that were highly numinous when they when they were contemporaneous. That is. You know, if you were an Alexandrian and you were living in the third century or in the uh, first century that she, she died in, in 30 uh, A.D., if if you were at that time uh, a citizen in the city of Alexandria, well, the palace where the queen lived, that was a big deal, sure. like the White House. Right. Right? So it was highly numinous when it was, at its current, or its, um, what is the word I want, contemporaneous right. experience, right? So it's highly numinous then. Yes. And people had been looking for it for years and years and years, so it remained that way. And I also knew that if somebody could find it, there would be a huge hoo-ha, as there was, and so it would become even more numinous. Right. So from the point of view of someone who wants to find something using non-time space, information sources uh that's a perfect target you, so i you know out a map let, let me 11 just people let me just cut in here so it's way way stronger with that compared to well we think possibly there was this ship 300 years ago that may have sunk over in this remote area that's not very numinous well you know if it's an anonymous ship and nobody knew about it and it sank and it has some numinosity because people died, right? And that that gives it some numinosity. But no, I mean, it's it. Let me put it in an even simpler, or in a, for to make the point even clearer. Yes, it, it's much easier, for instance, for a remote viewer to see Chartres Cathedral 
than it is a farm field in Germany. Why? Because the farm field in Germany is only of interest to the farmers that work it. Right. Whereas Chartres Cathedral is, you know, people go in, they're in an altered state of consciousness, it has beautiful uh, uh, stained glass windows, people have been going in there for centuries and worshipping, there's, you know, incense and music, and it's a hugely numinous target. It's like a, think about it as you're, like you're going down the hallway in a hotel, and most of the doors are closed, and they don't draw your attention at all, but one of the doors... The door is open, there's a band playing, people are laughing, Yep. there's a big party going on. Well, now, which door are you going to pay attention to? Right. Same thing. Yep. So I knew that in locating the Cleopatra Palace and Mark Anthony, that these were highly numinous, good targets. They would be more likely to be successful. Yes. So I sent out a, a, a standard British ordnance map of, the, of Alexandria and its harbors, and... Um, and I asked 11 people who were scattered all over the world uh, to locate for me where these things were located, which they did. And they sent the maps back to me, and I put all the maps on a light table. And with the light shining up underneath, I put them in registry. That is, I got them all so that they were exactly uh, overlapped, so that all the lines agreed. Same same and map size. Same. Oh, it's all exactly the same map. Yep. And uh, it was very clear immediately that there were certain areas where there were many more circles than other areas. <laughs> so I pay attention to consensus, just like journalists do, just like spies do, just like... Well, that, that made a difference. Yep. And, um, and so then I also asked them, once you locate this place... I want you to describe for me what I'm going to find. And so they drew pictures. I asked them to draw pictures for me. And mm -hmm. they, they drew pictures, and they gave me these long descriptions, pages of stuff. Hmm. Or sometimes they made tape recordings, and and I had to transcribe the tapes. And then I took all, in addition to doing the location work, then I took all of the statements they made, and I broke them down into their individual concepts. So let's to go back to the car accident or something like a, a detective might see. You know, if outside of your studio right now there was a car crash and you didn't see it because you're inside the studio, so you ran out of the studio to hear what the noise was about and there were a bunch of people gathered on the street and, and you went up to them and said, well, what did you see? What happened? Well, no one would see everything. And no one would get everything right. Yeah. We know, for instance, that women are more likely to get the color of a car in an accident right, hmm. and men are more likely to get the uh, brand of car. Sure. That <laughs> so, but if you interviewed all the people that were on the street, little by little, just like a detective or a journalist would, mm -hmm. you would be able to reconstruct a pretty good story of what had happened. It wouldn't be perfect in all regards. But particularly where people agreed, sure, or where they made what we call low a priori observations. That mm -hmm. is, things which you do not expect to see. If, for instance, somebody said, well, you know, one of the drivers was dressed in a clown suit. Right. Well, you don't expect to hear that. So that's a really odd sort of observation. So we look, when we do the analysis, we take apart literally every statement they make. So if someone said, 
Uh, it was a green car and a red car, and the green car was coming around the corner. That's just one sentence. Right. But I've got, in terms of concepts, green car, red car, coming around, corner. So you've got like, I don't know how many that is, like nine mm-hmm. individual concepts. Mm-hmm. And, and so we do an analysis of that, doing a kind of linguistic conceptual analysis, and, and we put all of that together, and by doing that analysis very carefully, it's a very tedious job, yeah. but we are able to construct very complete descriptions of what is going to be there, and we have a very clear idea of where to go. Okay, so this we're going to take, finish right after break. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts helping humanity wake up. One show at a time. Our guest, Stefan A. Schwartz, opening to the infinite. We'll be right back. And we're back. Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber and our guest, Stefan A. Schwartz, uh, of Opening to the Infinite. So you want to finish your story? Uh, okay. Uh, so I asked the people to do all these things. And, and then when we actually go to the site... You know, um, I have electronic survey work done first before we go there. Do they come with you? The remote viewers? Yes. Yes, I usually bring two remote viewers with me. Right, good. To fine-tune things, because no map, however detailed, is going to be, you know, I mean, we're talking about getting down to inches. That's right, right on. So, um, uh, and there are many stories in Opening to the Infinite about this, about how people have done this. But anyway... um, you know, everybody. I have an electronic survey done of the area so that I can compare the what you would have gotten if you had used electronic instruments as opposed to remote viewing. And every single time, the remote viewing does better. I will hmm. tell you that. Wow. Prepared to prove it. Mm-hmm. But in any case, everyone says, "Well, you went looking for Cleopatra's palace." No, I didn't go looking for Cleopatra's palace. I, we found it in about 15 minutes. I just went to where they told us to. I had I had um, people with surveying instruments. This was before we had GPS. Yeah. I had people with surveying instruments uh, at two points on the shoreline, and they triangulated, and they told us exactly where we had walkie-talkies. You know, go a little to the left, little to the left, little. Okay, you're right there where they intersected, and and then I and the other divers just went over the side. It, Maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, we'd locate it. <laughs> it, it we, we don't go looking. We go finding. That's nice. So let's say, let's say, you know, each person has the attitude, their intention, their general essence, and their behavior. We have a room full of a thousand people, and one person walks in. Does that make a difference? Yes. What is the difference? Their consciousness, their beingness. If you have a shared, if, if if you are enjoined in a group activity, in fact, let me frame it slightly differently. Mm-hmm. You will notice that in every spiritual path, at some part of the processes of that path, there are gatherings where people focus on common objectives, where there is usually chanting or drumming or singing or dancing, there is some kind of activity which 
which is done, which invokes emotional response, and which brings people into a common intention, a common linkage. Mm -hmm. And everybody who is a part of that process is a part of that process. So a different person, one very negative person, for instance, right. makes a difference. Now, they may not be able, they may be swamped out by all the good intentions yes. that other people have, but sometimes when there are just a very few people and, and there's a lot of negative intention, we know that that experiments may not work. I have been extraordinarily lucky, I guess, I don't think of it as lucky, I think of it as good design, yep, and because I have done my remote viewing, my archaeological projects, with many, many skeptical people observing, but the, but the way the project is structured is so highly numinous mm -hmm. that the remote viewers are able to overcome that. Sure. We're out of time, Stefan. Let me put out your two websites again for the newsletter, www.schwartzreport.net. And to just see the general work that Stefan's doing, it's www.stefanaschwartz.com, the book, Opening to the Infinite. You know, Stefan, you're a really good man, and we appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank uh, you. It was my pleasure to do the interviews. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again. We will definitely do it again. Thank you. You Thank have you. a good evening. You too. Bye-bye right, now. Bye. See ya. Bye. All right, you guys, come on. You can do it. You can do it. Stretch into the greater you.